Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy folks, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong. And together we're your Temporary, temporary experts. experts. Today's topic is Early Childhood Education. education. Because it's, it's in, in the, the news. news. <laughs> <laughs> and why is it in the news, Sarah? Well, Davis, because the Canadian federal government released a new budget, which has included the creation of a universal uh, universal child care system for the country. And that, it, it ended up being like the single biggest line item in the budget. It's several million, hundreds of millions of dollars over the next five years. Uh, and we thought we would take a look at uh, what the value of early childhood education is scientifically and economically, and uh, just take a little bit of a look at what the stages of our developing brains are. Because it's it's something I think that most parents and, and educators and people that work with children a lot really understand and they see, but sometimes we don't know like the specific science that's really dictating the various stages of development and what like we can do as as people who have children in our lives or people who are are going through those developmental stages, uh, how we can sort of help facilitate that. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people who, especially if you if you're around kids all the time, you might forget how their brains are developing. So you might start expecting more from them than they are like physically capable of. Just because you're used to being around them and say you're used to a kid being like like fairly logical or stuff like that. And then they do something and you just go, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. Be like, well, because their brain literally hasn't developed that thing you want them to do yet. I, that's a really good point. <laughs> I, I find this happens to me sometimes because I um I have a few tutoring students. And and there, most of my tutoring students are, are grade six students, actually. I, I do a lot of stuff for math. And it, sometimes I sometimes I worry with them. I have to remind myself that they're still in grade six. I'm like, well, why is it not? Why can't you just do this math in your head? And I'm like, well, Davis, it's because you've been doing this math <laughs> for like 10, 15 years longer than these kids have been doing it. So like maybe cut them some slack. I, I swear I'm a nice tutor. I, I promise you. <laughs> I cannot verify nor deny that, so <laughs> I just have to take Davis's word. But one of my favorite things, just before we get into the, I guess the meaty science stuff, one of my favorite mm -hmm. things of like uh, childhood development is object permanence. is mm -hmm. a is a concept I only uh, learned about. It was actually from a mutual friend a, a couple years ago, and object permanence is the knowledge that when something disappears from your field of view, it continues to exist. And humans are not born with this. We develop it around four to seven months. And this is why babies find the game Peekaboo so darn exciting. Because when you go behind a curtain or like behind a blanket or something, you literally disappear from existence and then you reappear and they don't know what's going to be you. And that's why Peekaboo is so fun. And that's why older kids get bored of Peekaboo because they know it's just you behind the blanket. <laughs> and that's when they graduate to games like hide and seek where there's a real element of risk involved no i'm just kidding <laughs> yeah eight months but yeah that's that's a that's a good one that's a really good one to start with too because like it is this class everybody knows that kids respond to peekaboo like you know babies especially respond to peekaboo and that's why it's because yeah they are literally and even to the point where right where you're just covering your own face with your hands in peekaboo yeah. <laughs> and the child thinks you've disappeared because your face is gone so the person doesn't exist anymore and this is something like animal a lot of animals don't have this. They do, they don't. Their brains can't process object permanence. It's only some of the higher order animals and like the really intelligent animals that have this ability. Yeah, I was gonna mm. bring up dogs. Yeah, there's, uh, mm -hmm. all those. I don't know if they were challenges, but it was like a trend 
for a while of like people bringing their dog over and like getting them to sit and then holding a blanket up and then uh they kind of like throw the blanket up in the air and they run because they'll like be in a doorway and they like run down the hall so when the blanket drops the human's not there and the dog like freaks out i'm gonna make a lot of comparison to dogs and kids i'm just calling it i do it all the time <laughs> so, i always you brought it up first i always think of i always think of dolphins because dolphins do have object permanence uh-huh. and also just because dolphins are one of the few animals that can actually recognize themselves in the mirror they also have a sense of self um so it's just one of those interesting <laughs> examples to to bring up all right so so where should we start sarah i think you know there's the one of the things that's tricky about early childhood education and this conversation around developing like a universal childcare system is that it always ends up really heavily politicized. And I thought that maybe, you know, I think maybe we should start with the science of brains and a little bit of like, you know, what a brain is kind of and what is happening to our brain and why the human pattern of brain development is, is again, so unique among the, the, uh, the animal kingdom, not just because we end up more intelligent than most other animals but also just because of the, you know, the nature of that journey results in us kind of being born in a very different de- developmental stage than a lot of animals. Going back to your point of how early childhood uh, education tends to be very politicized, it's, I feel like there's this idea of like, why would we pay them their glorified babysitters? I can pay the 12 year old down the street to do it. But early developmental stage is so important for setting up the person's life after that, that to just brush it aside as not important or not as important as regular schooling, because all they're doing is babysitting is really, it's like undermining the success of those children for the future because of how important or how many important developmental stages the brain goes through. And I came across a a quote that really kind of highlights this of, uh, it's better to get brain circuitry right the first time rather than try to fix it later. Because you can fix it later, but our brains become a lot less malleable. So it gets a lot harder to do as we get older. You know, you might be familiar with with a term, right? Like this, you, a lot of people have heard it before. This neuroplasticity comes up, right? And it is. It's a. It's the classic. Can you teach an old dog new tricks? And you can, of course, teach a dog of any age new tricks. But in terms of the way the human brain works and the the way our neural pathways get set, is that yeah, it becomes way, way, way more difficult to alter those pathways as we age. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of things that talk about that, right? Like, um, I think one of the ones that works really well uh, in explaining this is, you know, as you get older, you start to perceive time as moving a bit faster. Mm. Um, and you sort of go, oh man, I can't believe, I mean, this year being the expe- exception, because I would argue that like, because of the nature of the stress of this year, it's really, it's really caused things to slow down. And I think people would say that this has felt like one of the longest years in recent memory, the, but in normal, sorry, yeah, go no, ahead. This year has been weird for me because it, it like looking back to last what are we in? We're in April. Looking back to last April versus this April, it feels like it was forever ago, mm-hmm. but it also feels like it was yesterday. It's a very weird one. Mm-hmm, exactly. It's like, I can think of things that happened like two or three years ago and they all have entered, they all got so smushed together because of how long the <laughs> pandemic time frame has been that like all of those things, like things that happened three years ago feel like they happened yesterday. Yeah. But, and then as what well, like, or they all, all of those things that happened before the pandemic happened in this like very small slice of time. And then the pandemic is stretched forever and ever and ever. Yeah. But the reason that happens, right, <laughs> is because we're not learning as much generally. Mm-hmm. And so our brains sort of, we get in, and we get into routines, right? Our, our, a lot of our adult lives are built around routines. You go to work, you work your nine to five if you're an office jockey or, you know, you might, but you probably have a schedule of some type, even if you're in a bit more of a, of a gig economy or things like that. But, you know, we get very stuck in our patterns and then time tends to go very fast because our brain's very good at doing all of these little shortcuts, basically, and kind of cutting around the things that we're getting very used to. 
So as we age, the passage of time seems to sort of accelerate in our minds because we're not experiencing all these unique things versus like a kid, you know, some, for some children waiting five minutes is like agony, right? It's like, the, <laughs> it, it's, it, they might as well wait for the apocalypse at such a long period of time. And it's just because they're constantly being engaged with new stimuli because everything is new. And then as you get older and older, you get more and more familiar with your surroundings and then, and your brain is able to take these shortcuts. Also, delay of gratification is not something we're born with. We have to we have to learn that. And that's one thing actually that can predict like certain successes later in life as well, is if a child I forget what age group it was. Was it five year olds? Was it marshmallow? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they would like take a kid and put them in a room and put like a marshmallow or something really sweet in front of them and say, Okay, I'm gonna leave the room and if this is still come back or if this marshmallow is still here when I come back in five minutes, you can have two marshmallows. But if you eat it, then you only get like you don't get a second one. So the researcher leaves the room and comes back and, and the, if the kid can leave the marshmallow or not can determine a lot of stuff about it because it tells you about self-control, about like self-regulation, delayed gratification, trust, because do you trust that you're going to get a second one? Do you trust that if you eat the first one, you won't get a second one, right? Because there's a lot of parents who, or parents and adults in general who don't follow through on those lines of like, you will not get this and then the kid gets it anyway. So there's, there's a lot of very, very interesting research like that about but delayed gratification and self-control, which are very important things to develop in those first few years of life, which is why having, which is why ECE is so important. Also, mm-hmm. ECE, ECE is early childhood education. I feel like we're going to use it a lot because early childhood education is a lot of syllables. <laughs> you know, I, I'm glad you brought up the marshmallow example. I know we'll get into like, we'll, we'll go through the phases of brain development yeah. kind of temp, like, I was going to say temporally, it's sort of a weird way to frame it. <laughs> it but, weird. you know, we'll go through the, the chronology of it, so mm-hmm. to speak. But I'm glad you brought up the marshmallow example because I remember when I first heard about that study and I remember, I think I probably first heard about it in like a news article. So not sort of a scientific publication. And it was a lot of this classic like, oh, well, if your kids can't do this, then they're like doomed to not be successful. (laughs) And I mean, that's not really how the article was phrased, but that was definitely sort of how I looked at it originally. Mm Because, but then when I looked into this a little bit deeper, because I was like, oh, that's kind of unfortunate. I was like, I don't think five-year-old me would have passed this test. Um, I don't know that. 25 year old would have passed this <laughs> test but when I really started to look into it yeah it's it's that this is it, it is like it's a it's a bar, it's a barometer test right you can just sort of put a kid in a room and see like okay well how far has your self-regulation come basically but the whole point of it is is that like yeah it's it's a skill that can be learned mm-hmm. and so even though it's like just because you're five years old and you can't pass the marshmallow test at five doesn't mean that you're not going to learn how to pass it at six or even you know maybe you have to get into your 20s or maybe you have to get into your 30s before that lesson really sinks in you know and you really start to be able to practice those things but it's it's not a <laughs> It's not a, um, it's not a mark of doom, so to speak. Like, oh, you didn't pass the marshmallow test when you were five. You're not getting into Harvard. Like, you know. Unfortunately, the news has a bit of a tendency to dramatize science and science results. So even if the news article didn't say like, you're doomed, they freeze a lot of things like that. This isn't me being like the media, but journalists have a tendency to try to, to want to make things more exciting and more, um, like black and white, this or that than they actually are. (laughs) Well, and that's, uh, I guess that's just us <laughs> sort of going off on, on some different things. But yeah, like, let's talk a little bit, Sarah, about, you know, where where do we start as human beings? Like, why is, I mean, obviously human brain development is of interest because we're humans and we have brains, but... Um, <laughs> Two very good points. <laughs> accurate all the time for yeah. some people. Nailed it. Uh, um, <laughs> but, but what is it about, yeah, what is it about the human 
development that sort of makes this so important. Yeah. So as you mentioned before, compared to other animals, like other animals, when you think of like a deer, Mm. right, it gets up and can run around within hours of being born or even a dog whose developmental cycle is much longer than a deer, but it takes like a couple weeks for the eyes to, or a week for the eyes to open and then they'll up and moving around. But you take a dog home at two months, which means at two months, your puppy is like mobile and somewhat trainable and all this stuff. Whereas a human child takes a little bit longer because <laughs> our brains are <laughs> just a tad. Uh, our brains are very big and very complicated. And I mean, they take a ton of the energy of like the reason we need to eat all the time. A big part of that is because well, one, we're warm blooded, but two, we have a giant brain that takes a ton of resources. <laughs> it's funny. I always, um, I always talk about this with, um, especially with my friends when they're in university, especially. And this is something that me and my friends, we recognized when we were in university was that we would, we would, st- we would come to finals and, and my buddy Rob and I, we used to have this strategy of like, we basically treated studying finals like our full-time job. So mm-hmm. we would go to oh, the yeah. library, we'd lock ourselves down in the stacks, yep. we would work for basically eight hours straight, and then we would go home. And then we would kind of take our evenings off too. And th- we found this to be a really effective strategy. Much more well-balanced than my experience. <laughs> <laughs> but what we, what would happen is we would get home and we would have been sitting down all day in the library. Like we're not running around, we're not doing crazy stuff, but we would get home and it would be like, yo, let's order a pizza like yo I could eat like I'll you know <laughs> I'd dummy a bag of chips right now and like we would just eat and eat and eat and we and it, this would happen like every year every semester and then I realized it's like yeah it's because your brain your brain is a muscle like I mean we sometimes talk about it that way but it is and it's when you're activating your brain that way you require lots and lots of energy and your brain really likes simple energy it likes yeah. things like sugar and simple carbs and that's what it wants you to eat so it can power itself so, so it wants pizza yeah exactly exactly <laughs> Exactly. I mean, there's all, what is that, that there's that study that's like pizza triggers all of the sections of the human brain that like cocaine does. It's like I an addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A really good piece of pizza. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, now I want pizza. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> everybody go, at home. everybody go and order a pizza from your local pizzeria. Yeah, talking about self-regulation. Uh, <laughs> I, came, I came across a meme a while ago and it was like, being an adult is just seeing food out in the world and then telling yourself, no, we're not going to buy that. We have food at home over and over and over. There you go. That's the, that's the adult marshmallow test. The adult oh. version of the marshmallow test is can you not order in for dinner if you have food at home? So Davis and I will try this tonight. Yeah. Uh, we'll both see if we order pizzas tonight. And you at home, try it. Let us know on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> at Temporary Expert, uh, if you ordered a pizza or not. Mm-hmm. Um, if not, congratulations. If so, congratulations. You just had a pizza. So, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> win-win. Or or your or your takeout of choice, you know. Yes. Whatever floats your boat, flights your fancy. Heats your pizza? No. All right. That was bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, okay, so uh, our brains are big and they take a lot of energy to run. Um, but when we're born, they're not as small. They actually are... A, an average baby's brain is about a quarter of the size of the average adult brain, which... You know, it kind of makes sense if you think of like the size of a baby's head compared to the size of our heads. But then it, it doesn't match like growth rate of human size because mm. it will double in size in the first year and then keeps growing. It gets to about 80% of adult size by age three and 90% nearly full grown by age five. So those first five years, your brain is growing like crazy. It's getting so much more uh, room for not neurons. So neurons are the main cells in our brains. And we are born, I believe, with all the neurons we'll have for life. But it's not number of neurons that determine 
your brain power, it's number of neural connections. So connections that develop between the neurons. And neuron or neural connections develop by learning new stuff. When you do this, you learn new things, you develop neural connections. The more you practice those new things, the more those neural connections will develop and become stronger, just like muscles, right? You do a bunch of bicep curls, you're gonna get bigger biceps. But if you like only do like arms and chest, your legs are gonna get like, it's, you know, when, when no day is leg day. <laughs> uh, the same with your brain. If there's things that you never do, then those skills are going to get weaker because those connections are going to get weaker because our brains want to be efficient with where they're spending their energy and they want to work efficiently. So they will strengthen connections we use a lot and uh, reduce the strength of connections that we don't use very much. Yeah, the mu I really like the muscle analogy because this is even one that people really forget about when, you know, when you're building muscle, you know, because that's always what we talk, oh, you need protein to build muscle, right? Like, you know, the gym bro kind of thing. <laughs> but it's funny because you again you are not when you are working out a muscle like the bicep or whatever or any muscle you're not growing more muscle tissue more, more muscle well you're growing more tissue but you're not creating more muscle cells what you're doing is you're tearing the existing cells and that's why rest is so important because you have yeah. to give the time you you have to tear them stretch them back out so there's basically gaps in your muscle tissue and that they heal and that makes your muscles bigger and stronger uh and it's the it, i think that's a perfect analogy to the brain right where you're sort of saying we don't we start out with all the kind of the quote unquote raw material that's ever going to be there. And we both expand out in this sort of almost exponential way with our neural connections when we're very young. And then, but, and then even the pruning back of those neural connections is an important part of our brain's function and our ability to do some very complex things later in life. Absolutely. And it, it kind of, it might go against if you're thinking about like, well, you never forget how to ride a bike, but this is the, the neural connections. It's a bit different than that because riding a bike is so much physical and somatic knowledge. It's, yeah, it's, the it's muscle your, memory. Yeah, it's, it's muscle memory, right? As opposed to like math, right? Which is like a pretty much a pure brain function. Mm. You're not relying on your hand to do the math. Fun thing, fun thing, <laughs> neural connections and, uh, and trying to maintain. So if there's something you want to like make sure you remember or make sure you remember how to do, practice it. It's not just practice makes perfect, like practice makes possible. Exactly. Um, I think a, an example that a lot of people, and I know we'll probably bring this example up as we start talking about the various phases of brain development too, but an example that a lot of adults would really recognize too is, is trying to learn a language. Oh yeah. You know, and it's, <laughs> and I think everybody kind of has heard that thing, you know, it's like, oh, you want to start teaching another language before a student enters like grade four, because that's when their brain, before their brain sort of really starts to partition off that part of the brain for other functions. And if you know more than one language as you're growing up, it's much easier for you to learn a, a third or a fourth. Exactly. And, and so that's what they say. It's like, you know, a lot of their apps out there, like Duolingo is the really popular one now to help teach language and, and Duolingo's kind of whole platform is based around this idea that you have to do a little bit every day. Yeah. And, and that is really the big key towards language and really what like I really struggle with learning new languages I've, I've I've always wanted to learn a second language but I've just really struggled with it yeah. and part of it is is that yeah I can I could maybe for a few months sit down and do like hours of language training every day but then eventually I get distracted and I end up doing other things or other priorities take over and then all the progress you've made disappears very quickly and I mean you get into like habit forming and how hard it is to maintain a habit how easy it is to break a habit you know it takes 21 days to build new habits and it takes only like three days to break them yeah, mm -hmm. yeah we're very good at falling out of uh good new habits into comfortable easy old ones yeah exactly yeah. but enough about adults sarah who cares <laughs> about adults we're here to talk about babies yes but 
Adults are very important for the development of babies. Oh, good. Uh, oh, well done. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's like we've been doing this for a few weeks now. <laughs> Just getting good at these segues. <laughs> Blended right in. But then we lose it because we talk about them. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> it's like explaining the joke. Yeah. But anyway, adults. Adults are very important for uh, this, like getting, helping kids develop their brains and develop these neural connections that will help to make their brains function better basically as they as they age so the these early neural connections and things and and this relationship with parents sets the stage for the later development of things like motivation focus problem solving getting along with others and like we said self-regulation because if you can kind of set up these pathways you begin developing them when the kid is really young before five then that means these neural connections they're already going to exist and they're going to be getting strengthened the more that the adults around the child encourage this sort of like self-regulation behavior or motivation or playing nice with others things solving different problems like putting challenges that are accomplishable in front of them uh, the more you're helping develop the neural connections you're strengthening them so then as the child goes on these connections are already strong they're probably going to keep using them because they're going to like they're going to know how to do this so they're going to keep doing it and uh, they're going to need these skills for the rest of their life you know uh, and so the the adults who are around the kid are vital, absolutely integral to uh, uh, helping the kid develop properly. And, and it's the relationships you're looking for are positive, stable, nurturing relationships with caring adults. Because uh, caring interaction and stimulation in the first few years of a child's life will help them feel safe and secure, which is super duper important, feeling safe and secure. It's, it's really what you need for everything. I, I was gonna I was gonna make a joke about how stable nurturing relationships are really what adults want too. <laughs> it's, it's all, true. It's all we want. <laughs> and the relationships you had with the adults in your life as a child impact your ability to find and form positive, stable, nurturing relationships in adulthood. There you go. Never too early to start loving your kids. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I hope if you have kids, you kind of love them like pretty early, you know, but, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. un you know, unfortunately yes. it's not always the case. Yeah. Um, and, and that's sort of one of the tricky things that comes sometimes when you start talking about yes. early childhood is that, yeah, is that, you know, some of us are born, we're fortunate. We're born into privileged relationships where we yeah. have, where we do, where we have stable families and those sorts of things. And not everyone gets that. And this again, like it can, it, it can really speak to, and we'll get into it a bit more later, but it can really speak to why having a universal childcare system independent of a, in, an individual family status can be so meaningful for all children, regardless of their socioeconomic status that they're born into, right? It's not something we choose. Absolutely. And having those nurturing experiences if when you're young in your early years can help develop your health as you age and uh, your success, it actually predicts a lot of if you're going to be successful in math, language and social skills, if you're going to graduate, if you're going to be prepared for college and careers, and if you're going to be a contributing member of your society. Early childhood education affects all of these things. Mm -hmm. It's the foundation upon which the pyramid is built, right? It Absolutely. is. Um, and I mean, that even sort of come really comes out when we start talking about like our brain wants to make all of these connections. So you got the wide base and then it starts to prune away and you kind of build this pyramid from there. And then you get to those really, you know, if you become a PhD specialist, <laughs> that's the, that's the tip of the pyramid, you know, like that's a very small amount you know, not really small amount of neural connections, but it's it's such a specialized aspect of the brain. But you can't get there if you don't 
if you don't have these these strong um, connections and this strong foundation to Absolutely. build off of. So now we're going to go into a bit about uh, what happens at different ages as we go. So starting with our babies, this is typically considered like zero to two-ish years. This is where they're starting to develop those bonds that they can have for their lifetime. And this is where you can start providing a child with the inner resources to build self-esteem and relate positively to others. Because these are things like we always think that we can just do this. And there is evidence of like morality and empathy in, in babies and, and even toddlers. I know the terrible twos. <laughs> but uh, like think about a baby will cry when they hear another baby crying because they they're empathizing with their pain. And then later on, they actually they'll mimic the gestures and sounds that their parents make to comfort them if they see another infant experiencing distress, you know, or like, I mean, I think we've all seen this with, with kids, maybe not, maybe not babies, but kids who will, if there's like even an adult who's sad around them, they come over and like give you a hug and you didn't, you thought like maybe you're doing a good job of hiding it. And then they hug you and you're like, Oh, this is so nice. And it, and it's, it's an innate human like desire, especially if it's being built into you. Like if you've had people comfort you, then you want to go and comfort others. And it's like the cutest darn thing. Oh, absolutely. You know, and this is this is really one of those things that is um, that it, it is really you. I was gonna say unique among children, but it's not really. It's, <laughs> it, but it's one of those really neat things is that you know children are, and it's something really important to keep in mind is that children are super perceptive and they are very in tune to the things that are going on around them. And and it's it's easy for us as adults to sometimes get dismissive of, dismissive of that, right? Because we see kids do stupid stuff. We're like, how are you aware of your surroundings? But kids, especially when dealing with other people, are very intuitive. Um, there was a really good quote or, you know, kind of a good analogy I was reading the other day. And it was, unfortunately, it was about a big, it was a big reading about, um, you know, abuse and things like that. But it was talking about how the, the, the axe forgets, but the tree remembers. And it's this idea of like an adult is sometimes like an axe and will say or react or do things that they don't even think about. You know, we lead, we lead busy lives. Sometimes we're, you know, we're human beings. We get annoyed. We get impatient. All these things happen. It's perfectly natural. And we'll snap or we'll do certain things. And we don't recognize that like, you know, as adults, we've gotten to this developmental stage where we might do stuff like that and we move past it and we don't, and we, and it doesn't, it, it, again, like I'm saying, the ax doesn't remember, but the kid is like a tree and they're going to remember all of these things. And so you hear these stories come out about people who have these singular incidents with, with even with very loving parents yeah. where they just remember being disciplined a particular way or when, you know, mom or dad lost their temper or things like that. And that is something that they will carry with them consciously or subconsciously. Yeah. Kids are super sensitive to emotional regulation and it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. They, they are relying on the adults around them to show them what being a human is. Mm -hmm. And and it's from from the very get-go, right from when they're born. And then I think we stop thinking that they're doing that. And we also, a lot of our society is about don't show your emotions, especially don't show sadness and fear. But kids experience all their emotions and they experience so much sadness and fear. And if they see, if they see that we are sad or fearful, then they'll want to comfort us. But if it's pushed down or if there's, if an adult snaps at a kid, um, Typically because we cover our sadness and fear with anger. <laughs> we do it a what? lot. No, I've never done that ever. And he storms <laughs> out of the room. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's like we're, we cover it with anger. So there's a, so you snap at the kid. and But the kid, they take everything personally, right? Because they there's, there's actually like the developing brain can't understand all the things that you're going through that might have caused this. They only know exactly what's happening to them. 
It's like dogs. <laughs> uh, dogs, if you're gonna, if a dog does something bad, you're gonna discipline the dog. You have to do it like very, very shortly after the bad action has taken place, so the dog can connect the discipline to their action. Because if you wait too long, then too much has happened, and the dog doesn't know why it's happening. Um, it just knows it's being punished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is really interesting. Almost as a little bit of an aside, is like. <laughs> It's like the complete opposite with cats. Yeah. Basically, cats don't have empathy, really. So a, ca- a cat, or it, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that cats don't have empathy. What I should say is that cats don't, they don't have the ability to create those temporal relationships the same way. So you can discipline a cat right after it does something wrong. It is not going to remember <laughs> that. It's not going to be able to make that connection. It's really funny. That's why it's so hard to train cats um, to get away from their bad behaviors, unless you're training a kitten. My, my concern with uh, getting a cat has always been, like, if you... Because I, like, I'm a dog person. Like, if I get a pet, it'll be a dog. Uh, because I would want it... If it does something, I want to discipline it and train it and teach it. And you can't do that with cats because you might try and you might think you made a connection. And then it throws up in your shoes. Because it's just like, you did something mean to me. I'm going to do something mean to you. And there's, like, a... But there are some cats who do things on purpose. Absolutely, though. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> cats are very intelligent. But yeah. we're talking about babies. <laughs> right. Babies. <laughs> There's a lot of similarities between babies and a lot of other animals, but mostly dogs. That's fine. Uh, So, well, also like dogs, I'll try to stop saying that, uh, where dogs like want to cuddle and they want to be pet and things like that. Cuddling is super duper important to little kids, like, well, to babies, because touch calms babies by reducing levels of stress hormones like cortisol and lowering their heart rate. So the reason like picking up a baby and kind of rocking it and soothing it and the reason touch is such an integral part of that is because of this. It's literally brain stuff. And I mean, even adults, uh, what hormone is it when we hug for 20 seconds? Uh, oxytocin. Oxytocin. So adults, if we hug someone else for 20 seconds, the we get oxytocin. drug. Yeah. Oxytocin love drug released <laughs> in our brains. Uh, and that makes us feel connected and bonded to the person that we're hugging. It makes us feel less alone and it makes mm-hmm. us feel happier. So go hug someone safely. It's COVID. Go hug one of your two contacts or someone you live with. Hug your friends. Yes. Hug your friends. You Like we don't find touch with everyone calming i'm not mm-hmm. saying that mm-hmm. but babies also don't find touch with everyone calming right like they Hug have your people... friends with consent with consent <laughs> uh babies find uh touch and cuddling from people they know comforting this is why sometimes like this is an interesting one like a little case study too is like uh, i don't know how many people have heard about swaddling you may have seen it and maybe not know that that's what the name it is but it's like when you see a little baby and they're all wrapped up in their blanket like really really tightly like a little burrito little baby burrito yeah exactly and it's not effective for all children like not all babies like want want to be swaddled but their swaddling is actually an indigenous technique and for a long time you know, obviously with the history of residential schools and the colonizational history here in Canada, a lot of those indigenous practices were looked down upon by Western educators. And without getting too much into that, but so swaddling was one of these things that was seen as a, as a, not a, not a good thing to do with your kids. And, but it's, it's actually been shown now, the science supports the fact that swaddling is actually very beneficial to calming young babies down. So if you have a baby that's like inconsolable and is crying, you can try this technique of swaddling. You can find like YouTube videos about how to do it. There's a way to wrap your kids specifically, but it's, it's just, it shows again, like why this touch or, you know, it sort of emulates the feeling of being in the womb a little bit for these very young infants and things like Mm -hmm. that. And it can be very calming for them. And it helps reduce these stress hormones. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, going back to adults too, weighted blankets are a big thing now. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we're all basically just 
waiting to be swaddled or, or you talk to people and they're like yeah I just like made a cocoon out of my blankets and I lied there all weekend like we like that too mm-hmm. <laughs> makes that's, sense baby. that's a very important we like our cozy spaces right yeah mm-hmm. and the weighted blanket helping sleep and stuff and it's I don't know I'm seeing a lot about that I haven't really looked into too much of the science of it but it it seems like there's something to it if this many people like weighted blankets mm-hmm. oh yeah well there's there's been there's stuff that shows like weighted blankets are really good for like anxiety and things mm-hmm. like that because it does it gives you this feeling of being secure or even having like a dog or a cat sit on your lap. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people talk about that and not just like the close time with your animal, but this like warm weight kind mm-hmm. of like hanging out with you. But uh, then they, uh, uh, so or, uh, we talked about, remember we talked about object permanence? Yes. Yes. So uh, object permanence and peekaboo mm-hmm. and uh, that like delightful baby laugh that you get if you play peekaboo with a baby who does not yet have object permanence. Laughter is actually really, really important for little kids. Uh, And they really, really, there's been studies that show that they focus intently on games that result in laughter. Like they, they really do focus on them um, because laughing, like if the baby laughs, then the adult tends to laugh and mirroring, which is what that is. Like the the baby or the child has an emotion and the adult mirrors that emotion back to them. It, it shows like that they're okay and they're being engaged with and they are being accepted and all these sorts of things. So there's that, there's that mirroring happening and the baby learns that when they laugh, it's an invitation to adults to play with them and to continue engaging with them and continue giving them attention, uh, which they really need a lot of. Well, it's the same sort of thing, right? Like it's this call and response between yeah. infants and their caregivers, right? And it's it's that call and response is really important to children's brain development. And, you know, I know that this is one that sometimes goes back and forth, but some people will talk about like, oh, you shouldn't talk to your babies in baby talk. And other people are like, no, you're ridiculous. Of course you should talk to them in baby talk. And it it is, you should, you know, those nonsense syllables, but responding in kind to when yeah. your baby, you know, babbles and then responding in any way, whether it's with, you know, with nonsense or with real words, that response is really important and it helps them grow those connections, the the connection with another person and then also the neural connections in their brain. But baby speak, so to, you know, so to speak, is, (laughs) is actually a very important part of developing language. So it's not something to be sort of like shamed out of kids, which I, which I think is just not the way to go about things anyway, but I I digress. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, there are studies on that as well. It's the like reading to your kids and talk to, talking to your kids is super mm-hmm. important because the amount that they're spoken to, the amount of words they are um, exposed to in a day and the amount of different words they're exposed to, including nonsense words like baby talk, actually can help set them up for success later in life. They've just been exposed to more variety. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's why reading with your kids can be really, really valuable and it can help them reach a place of independence in their reading a lot faster as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then... As they continue aging, they get to walking, uh, which expands their world a lot, right? A kid goes from just crawling around to walking. You got to make sure you have all your baby cabinets and all your stuff all set up (laughs) because they will get everywhere. Uh, And a great quote that I came across (laughs) that I think uh, sums it up very beautifully is, Once a child begins to walk, they can navigate and explore their world in a much more directed and aggressive way. And boy, do they. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been told that I was running at nine months, which sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> Sorry, mom. But I was just ready to explore aggressively, apparently. <laughs> well, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like, you know, children of all ages and even adults like to emulate each other. And and, and, and children like to emulate adults. They, You know, it's it's so natural of like, I want to do what the adults are doing. I want to do that cool thing. And I'm also a younger sibling, so I'm wondering mm-hmm. if that had something to do with it. Yeah, that's a good point too. <laughs> I'm an, catch up to my brother. I'm an eldest sibling, so I don't have that same perspective necessarily. <laughs> so maybe I was the slow developer and then I, 
That's why my brothers are so much more successful than I am. <laughs> <laughs> why one of them so, flies jet engines and I record a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> differently successful, Davis. Differently successful, says the person you're recording the podcast with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So anyway, they're up, they're moving around, more aggressively exploring their worlds. Uh, and then the toddler years, right? So kind of like year and a half to three years. They, they're starting to display a new range of skills. They've got new competencies. They're they're more curious about the world. They're starting to be able to communicate with you a lot more. Because the communication starts when they're babies, right? You get the baby talk, mimicking sound and response. But as they get older, they get more words. They're better able to communicate what's in their brain to someone else. Because they've also moved, like, it, this, it happens with kids for quite a while. But they, they believe, at first, babies believe that they kind of, they and their mother are one thing. They don't have any like separate sense of self yet. Mm. And then as they age, they realize that they are separate. Um, and there's usually like when they start recognizing themselves in a mirror as well with dogs, right? And other <laughs> other animals like that recognition and beyond what a lot of dogs do is recognition of that image in the mirror as self. So they go from being thinking they and the mother are one to recognizing they're an independent being. But then they have to realize that not everything that's happening in their head and in their experience, everyone else knows. And uh, an example I came across was like a kid is, is like, wants to go for a walk. So they say, okay, like go put on a clean shirt. So the kid runs into the room and just goes, mom, is this shirt clean? And the kid's like five. And, and the mom goes like, what shirt? Because the kid is looking at the shirt and just says this shirt, because they there's a, there's an assumption that their adult knows what they're talking about when they don't. And I was like, this took me a while to to truly grasp of like, people don't know what's going on in your head. And this actually is another adult thing. Mm-hmm. No one knows what's going on in your head unless you tell them. So it's like the whole idea behind like, well, if you're like fighting with someone and you say, well, I'm not going to tell you what it's about because you, you should know already. You should know why I'm upset. Be like, well, they're not in your brain mm-hmm. because they're a separate being. So something we still apparently struggle with. Yeah, this is something that comes up in a lot of like philosophy 101 classes, actually, because it is is this basically is that the philosophy sort of states uh, and I could unfortunately can't remember the philosopher who stated this, but the idea is that there is no there's not necessarily there is no way for an individual brain to prove that other brains are thinking. Essentially, (laughs) it's like there's no, you know, the way it sort of phrases that there's no way to know if the mental processes that you have, like if your consciousness is the same as another person's consciousness, Mm -hmm. because you can never jump inside their brain, their specific biological wiring to understand how their brain is functioning. So, you know, as kids start to develop this understanding of, oh, wait a second, the the internal monologue that I'm thinking all the time is not just out there for the world to experience and not everybody else is playing along with this same internal monologue, that almost never goes away. And I think even we have, it's sometimes something we have to relearn as adults, especially when we start to enter into like relationships with each other and things like that. Friendships and romantic relationships is understanding like, wait a second, my friends don't know what I'm thinking or (laughs) how do I know that my friends think at all? (laughs) Sometimes questionable. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I, we still deal with like all the time right I mean I I know that people don't know what's going on in my head they don't know what experiences I've had lately so they don't know like how I'm approaching situations and what other things I'm thinking about but I always assumed there was like some base level of similarity it was like last year I came across like a, a twitter thread or something of someone saying like that they they just learned that other people don't have an internal monologue and yeah, some other... people don't. I can't even wrap my head around that. Yeah, and like some people don't even think in words. They only think in like images. And this was like absurd to me. My head is like a constant stream of 
words and usually song lyrics. There's usually a song being sung, but it's it's like very very word based. I have to work quite hard to think in images and to visualize, whereas other people like that's just their standard. Hmm. So we still don't get it as adults, and kids are just learning it <laughs> as they grow up. Um, so this is why teaching them things like emotional regulation and communication are super duper important because the more that they can communicate how they're feeling and the higher their like communication skills are and they trust that they will be listened to, the more likely they are to communicate and then the, the better able you are to help them with that emotional regulation. Because as we all know, the, the toddlers is called like, you know, the terrible twos. They're going to have meltdowns uh, as they as they just start developing this language and they're they're discovering more independence, right? They're up, they're mobile, they're able to do more things, they're getting taller all the time, they reach more stuff. And then they discover the word no, and it's their favorite thing because they they can be independent and they can be free and they can say no, but they don't really like accepting no from others. And this conflict that they're going through between wanting independence and wanting to explore and the adult having to say like, no, no, let's keep you safe because it's not safe to do the thousand different things that you're trying to do. Uh, and the kid has a meltdown about it. It's this is where that like starting to teach communication and emotional regulation becomes super duper important. Like there's so many threads you can go through uh, online of like, why my toddler's upset. And some of them are great. Like, cause it's always like a picture of a kid in a pure meltdown. And it's like, I wouldn't let them eat the penny. Or, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wouldn't <laughs> let them stick their finger in the electrical socket. <laughs> yeah. Or like they don't want to go. And then in brackets, it's like, we're not going anywhere. And we've told them repeatedly or like, I broke his cheese was one of my favorites. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so like being the, the more that your kid learns how to communicate with you and that you will listen when they mm -hmm. communicate with you, the, the easier those conversations are going to be and the better able you're going to help them develop that emotional regulation because they don't have it when they're little. And we have to help teach them why consistent, uh, empathetic and nurturing adults. <laughs> this is another reason why they're so important because you, you want to help them develop and learn this emotional regulation without putting shame on them. Mm -hmm. So so guilt and shame are concepts that get that get uh, mixed up a lot, but guilt is feeling bad over an action that you've done, whereas shame is feeling bad about who you are. Hmm. That's like I like that. That's a good like I I guess I've never really thought about that distinction between the two. It reminds me kind of of the the classic conversation of like the difference between jealousy and envy. Okay, yeah, so guilt and guilt and uh, shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so if a child, and this is where we also might have aggression, right? Mm -hmm. We start getting like aggressive. Aggression at this age of the, the one and a half to three years often stems from fear or anger. But if a child acts out, they need to be shown what the, con the natural consequences are for their action without being shamed for that action. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's very, very easy to to muddle that connection. So they, they, they go from thinking, I have done a bad thing to I am bad for the things I have done. And that is a huge difference. And it sets up a very, a, a very damaging self-esteem. Cause mm -hmm. if you grew up thinking when I do bad things, I am bad. I feel like it's where we've got a lot of, like our generation has a ton of anxiety mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and just stress around like existing and failure and self-esteem linked to work output 
and all of these things, right? Oh yeah, I said that even in a in a job interview a while back. Um, you know, the, to the classic "What's your greatest weakness?" question, which is always a super fun one. You, you know, but it's it's a good it, it's one of those ones I go back and forth on as an interview question. But I, I'll I'll save that for another conversation. But uh, you know, I answered that with saying like, and this is again, this is just a lesson that I was just learning is that. I was starting to recognize that I wrapped up a lot of my personal value in my work output. And I realized that like, I am good at work. I'm generally pretty good, somewhat. Um, As someone who's worked with Davis, (laughs) yes, he is. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, I I like to produce good work. But I realized that the projects failing or not going the way that you expect them to go did not affect my value as a human being. And, and I sort of said this in this interview of like, I'm really trying to get to this place of decoupling my, my, my work from my value and understanding that I am good at work and I produce valuable work and, and I am also valuable as a human being. And, and I think that, you know, it speaks really, I think it speaks well to that point you're trying to make of that, you know, we, this is a lesson that we sometimes have to learn, relearn and relearn (laughs) over and over and over again throughout our life, especially as things that we, we create these stable environments for ourselves and then they collapse sometimes, you know, things happen, right? Life goes in all these crazy directions. Absolutely. And someone who, as someone who was a gymnast and then a very high achiever in school, absolutely. It has taken me a lot of work to realize that my my self-worth was so linked to the work that I did and then to uncouple it it's it's one of those things you have to you have to like go over every day with yourself if you're trying to build self-esteem then it's about accepting the core self so if you didn't do that as a kid for whatever reason and there's tons of reasons we're not just blaming parents uh (laughs) parents parents get a lot of grief uh because you are the ones that your kids are around the most in theory but there's there's a billion factors that influence the kids and their self-esteem. But if you can lay the groundwork when they're little for shame-free acceptance of consequences for bad behavior, because we all act up. And if a kid, especially if a kid feels safe with their adults, they're going to start pushing these boundaries because that's what we do. That's what we all do. That's why that's what adolescence is. Right. And like, if you feel safe and secure, you're probably going to want to push on those boundaries because you know that you have a safe place to come back to. But if you also, if the, if the relationship has been established enough that you also respect the people, then you might feel guilt over a bad action and want to not do it again so as to not hurt someone else, but not because you're afraid that they're going to stop loving you for it, which is what shame would be. Yeah, I know someone who's a very, very strong, very competent early childhood educator. And one of the things that she does is, or she has, she told me the story a while back of there was a kid in her, in her center who was kind of, you know, was, was pushing some other kids around, right? It was a little bit physical, physically bigger. And this is really normal behavior for kids, but obviously this is part of what they're trying to teach these kids in these centers about, you know, this emotional regulation and how to treat others and things like that. Yeah. And she sat down with this boy and she said, you know, what you did, like, you know, what you did is a bad thing. You know, you really, you really hurt so-and-so's feelings. You kind of, you hurt my feelings a little bit when you do these kinds of things, but I don't think you are a bad person. You're not a bad person for doing them, but this, these are not things. This is not how we treat other people. And it was, and this was someone, this was a kid that, you know, was not a problem child by any stretch, just like someone who this was, this was the stage of development that they were going through. This is the lesson that they were needing to learn at that time. And they got very quiet and then they were very reflective and, it was, you know, it was really clear that like what she had said and the way she had said it, just like you said, not shaming this kid for who he was, but rather that, hey, that behavior hurts others, but you're not bad because you did it. And I'm not punishing you because you're bad. 
I'm, you know, we're sitting over here, we're taking a little time out because you know, what you did hurt another person. And that's the, the, these are the consequences of those actions, but it doesn't mean that you're never going to not be this person. Absolutely. And they might've learned that behavior from adults in their life. Right. So it's, it's, it's hard to go to a kid and say, you're acting so, so bad. You should be ashamed of what you've done mm -hmm. if they are just modeling behavior they have seen or they have been, like, not punished for or something by the other adults in their life. Because we we learn most of our... We learn our emotional regulation and we learn our fears as well, right? So if you if you, if you you come at a kid with this, like, this blame, they're, they're mimics. Kids are mimics. And we always talk about them being sponges, but, like... We're monkeys, right? We learn monkey see, monkey do. Yeah, I was just we, gonna say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you see a kid acting out, it's it's this like trying to take a step back, like take a step back, take a breath, and deal with the behavior, not the not the person, so to speak. Yeah, because yeah. like be like always being empathetic towards the kid. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Because and if you if if you're empathetic towards the child, then they're gonna learn empathy and they're gonna learn to be empathetic towards others. And then this helps us put ourselves in other people's shoes and it helps us to not escalate things. So if, say, if that kid then got pushed by someone else, he might, instead of pushing back and starting a fight, maybe he would talk to the kid or he would go tell a trusted adult and say, like, this kid pushed me and uh, without being like, this kid pushed me, he's horrible, right? And obviously kids are still going to do this because they're learning. <laughs> uh, but they are, like, repetition and consistency in this sort of emotional regulation just like with dogs and training, you have to be very, very consistent. Consistency is key with training dogs and consistency is key with raising kids. If you want to turn this episode into a drinking game, every time <laughs> that Sarah mentions like dogs, take a shot. Although maybe I shouldn't be encouraging that because you might die. There's still a lot left to go in this podcast. Take a, take a sip. <laughs> we, we will uh, clarify the rules. At yeah, the end yeah. Of the... <laughs> take a sip of a non-alcoholic beverage. Yes. Um, Have yeah. your sparkling water. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the interesting things about this stage too, or, or uh, something I want people to keep in mind as we start talking about this, is that there there's this model of care for early childhood that's built around this idea of like, unfortunately, I cannot remember the name for the theory like right off the top of my head, but it is essentially this idea of like, concentric circles around the child mm -hmm. and it's this idea of like you know when you're born your primary relationships like we were talking about is you know with your parents and your siblings right so that core family unit and then with each sort of stage of development because of the way like we go through you know we're, we're infants and then typically we'll, we might go to like preschool or something like that and then kindergarten and then we go into school is that those those circles start to grow so there's you know there's the core family unit there's the extended family unit outside of that and we're kind of talking about this you know one to three year old range now and that's when you start to develop these social interactions with the other people in your community so again other close family friends or cousins and things like that and kids of the same age that you start to build a relationship with and those concentric circles continue to kind of grow around the, the child so it's and it's all of these different aspects are important to the development of healthy children right so again you kind of expand out to okay well now you've got the school population and the teachers and their peers and all those and then you have beyond that just the greater community as a whole and all of these aspects are important to have in some sort of lockstep or some way some sense of synchronization in order to create this really strong robust protection essentially for a child's development absolutely and as the child continues to develop and they get into school uh we're talking preschoolers now three to six so this is when they're starting to, they've got like a good base, right? And this is why we can start school at this age because they can start learning 
a bit more conceptually. So this is a very, very critical period, three to years, or age three to six. It's critical for learning numbers, letters, reading, simple math, and music, actually. Yes, this is, uh, um, I think I mentioned in an earlier podcast that I trained as a violinist. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a musician today by any stretch of the imagination. I can still play because of the motor skills. But um, <laughs> but yeah, this is this is actually around the time when I started learning. I started learning at about five years old. And I and I did play with people who started learning as young as, as three. Wow. Yeah. I, I didn't start playing instruments until grade seven and like singing in around grade seven as mm-hmm. well. And I found it was it's always been difficult for me to develop my ear. Like my my ear, my ability to judge notes and find notes because I didn't spend the time doing it when I was young. So then I, I started at 12 and it's much harder to <laughs> start learning new stuff at 12, especially when it's so physical. Mm-hmm. And if you're a kid and you're doing like piano lessons or violin lessons, you're going to do it like what every week? every few days depending on how like serious your parents are about it oh we had to practice every day yeah so we had lessons (laughs) once a week we practiced every day that's the model that's the way to do it that's (laughs) why i was never as good (laughs) (laughs) but again it's just like we were talking about with language right if you don't practice the skill you learn you lose them absolutely Mm -hmm. uh and with violin and piano and things this is also where the kids are starting to improve on their gross and fine motor controls so gross being like big and fine motor controls being little uh, so this is where they're going to get Although into... children are also sometimes gross. Children are, <laughs> children are usually gross. They're very body fluidy. It's gross. <laughs> so they're gross. But yeah, gross motor control does not mean like the sneeze reflex. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> It'd be funny uh, if it did though. Yeah. So this is when uh, they get like, they might get super into arts and crafts um, or to- things they can ride on like bikes and scooters and stuff. Uh, they're developing early sports skills, which can lead to participation in organized sports by the end of this developmental period Hmm. i know i i mean i was in gymnastics at this age and i was huge into crafts i'm still huge into crafts but like (laughs) it started when i was little and actually i I worked recently um with uh some spring camps some virtual camps and it was really interesting seeing i don't know if it's a a how we're raised thing or a just where our natural interests go but you can tell the kids who grew up with doing crafts versus the kids who weren't really used to doing crafts. And there there was a bit of a girl-boy split here, which is why I say, like, I don't know if it's how we were raised or what our interests were in, because I was definitely really in- into crafts. But the the little girls, you might tell them, like, okay, we've got to, like, cut this shape out, or, like, especially using scissors and, and these shapes, and they could get it faster than the boys. And I had a friend who was working with 12-year-old boys, and they had to cut kind of like a hand shape out of cardboard. And she said it, it spent, like, they spent like half of the, the session, so like 25 minutes, just cutting out the hand because they were so unused to working with these fine motor skills. Like, And they were in a sports camp, so they were probably, if you threw like a ball at them or something, they'd probably be really good at that. Whereas I, I can like do a lot of little fiddly stuff, but like I was kind of, and I was raised in gymnastics, which is a different sort of skill set. If you put a ball in my hand of like any of the ball-based <laughs> sports, it's like I grew up with basketball as well. I know a lot about basketball. I don't have very good aim because I didn't develop those skills young enough and then I never spend enough time into them. And, and that's interesting too because this is like where you start to see 
people's interests start to diverge, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you, like you're saying, you get, you start to see these kids who may one be a bit exposed or have more material to do crafts or the time or the, the interest expressed by the parents to do those sorts of things. Or like, if it's what the parents are into, they're going to pick up on that. But also where you do, you start to just see like, and this is where you get into those funny situations with some parents where they're like, it's like, I don't even understand why my kid is into this. I like, we never <laughs> even talked about it, but it's like, it is because we're sort of preset with some of these things a little bit. Yeah. And you know, this is where we start to really diverge. And so I'm looking at kind of our our notes a little bit here and I'm like thinking about me and my brothers. My brothers and I did really start to diverge slightly in terms of what our interests were in that I really started to develop this huge interest in stories at that time where I wanted to write stories and read stories all the time. And, and, you know, and I'm, you know, still a science educator. So like, obviously my interest in science was really growing and I was building things with Lego and, and thinking about the world that way. We used to watch so many little, you know, movies about um, space, uh, space engines, I was going to say, <laughs> space engines, <laughs> space engines <laughs> the space shuttle and things like that. There's a running joke in my family about, I used to emulate what, you know, what the, um, what the, the hosts would do and send some, some of the voiceover <laughs> stuff. It's pretty funny, but you know, and then my brother, um, my one brother, especially who's, who's they're both engineers, but you know, he really started to get into the, yeah, it was like he was building water filtration devices out of leftover egg cartons and paper tubes. And my grandmother would basically keep all of the recycling from weeks and weeks and weeks. So when we would go over there, he would like build to his heart's content, basically, of all these crazy ideas he had. What a nerd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I say that being, like, impressed. <laughs> also, being a nerd is not a bad thing. Oh, yeah. When you, when, <laughs> when every few days I get a photo, oh, he sent a video the other day of him doing a Cuban 8 maneuver in a plane, which is essentially a type of flip. Wow. And, uh, that was crazy. So, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, indulge your kids a little bit in, yeah. the, in the types of things they're interested at that age, and then who knows, they'll be test pilot engineers. Yeah. <laughs> or I did, I was also the person who hoarded anything that could be used as a craft supply Mm. but then you can use this to I remember making a lot of ornaments Mm. and so you start making decorations that you then can put up and you can see the stuff that you made and you kind of feel like you're part of the house as well in like a much more concrete way you can make gifts for people it's pretty it's pretty neat you make your own toys which I think has led a lot to I try to live more sustainably now and like getting away from the throwaway life cycle that we're all in and I feel like that probably had a big part of it because I have this this knowledge of like okay I know I can make these things with this stuff and I'm I'm already going to have this stuff for the most part and it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we're talking about all these different sort of like playing that we like to do, playing is actually the most important uh, mode of learning during this time period from three to six. So make believe play of all kinds. Uh, the kids love doing right. Like this is why. The empty cardboard box is more exciting than the toy because the empty cardboard box can be whatever you want it to be, you know, and it's uh, it really helps to develop the your language. Right. I mean, you might be making up new languages. My cousin and I made up a language. We didn't stick to it, but we made it up uh, <laughs> and it, it helps you with socialization because you're getting you're usually playing with others. And even if not, you're imagining stories like you mentioned. Right. Mm-hmm. And like I know I was like all about stories. My Barbies always had very, very compli- like complicated interrelationships and I don't know <laughs> the Like the why. desperate housewives. <laughs> yeah, it was it was very dramatic all of the time. Mm-hmm. Come from a very stable household, but my, my Barbies had very <laughs> unstable lives. <laughs> uh, and also like their creativity, right? So this is the, the box can be anything. And, and this is where encouraging that is so important as well. So 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say, um, just to wax poetic or get all nostalgic about it for a second. <laughs> like, yeah, with, you know, and it's really, it is, it's super, super meaningful when parents engage with their children in that type of imaginative play with them. Because uh, I have memories of, from, from my childhood of a game our dad used to play with us in, you know, like, I, I don't I don't know what, you know, we'd, in their bedroom or whatever. And we would put a book down on the ground at the edge of the bed. And we would play this game of like, we would be jumping into the book and then we'd be living out the environment of the book. And that's it, so cute. it is super cute. It's super cute. And like, obviously I have a great, I have a really great relationship with my parents now. Um, I'm very fortunate to, and, and it's something that like my dad is, uh, my dad is a very creative person, but he's a little bit more of the, like the left brain, like analytical type. And so it's really interesting to reflect back on these stories and think of like him sort of really going outside of his comfort zone a little bit to engage in this type of play with us. And it was like, and this was, I, I remember this was a game that we played almost like exclusively with my dad and it, not that my mom wouldn't have participated or anything like that, but just like, but the, again, these are these, these types of memories that you build, like I'll, ne I'll never forget that and those sorts of things. And, and then especially as an adult, something that I learned to appreciate even more because I started to recognize who my dad was as a person and that parts of that might've been outside of his comfort zone, but he was doing it because he loved us, you know, when we were his kids. And that realizing that something is, something is outside of uh, someone else's comfort zone is a big thing for parents when dealing with children of because mm -hmm. as like dealing with something recognizing someone is working outside their comfort zone is knowing them and respecting who they are and and discovering who they are which is something that if you are working with a little kid you have to take time to discover who they are because all kids are different and like we said there there's there's stuff that is kind of trained into us and taught into us but kids all come out with different personalities right mm -hmm. and and different interests and different things that capture their interests so if the the adult in their life or as the adult in their life kind of your job and your responsibility is to allow the child to follow those those interests and obviously not to the point where they get hurt like in the actually in the three to or the one and a half to three years kids actually start getting a little they might start getting interested in helping out with chores and stuff mm -hmm, right because mm -hmm. because they're mimics and they want to do what the adults are doing yeah. and they want to learn so we they, always wanted to do the dishes now <laughs> i hate doing the dishes what happened <laughs> So I don't know what happened with Davis, but it, <laughs> it can be. Well, really... I actually do know what happened. I worked as a dishwasher when I was 14 for oh, a year. Oh, you did it to yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so with kids, like if they want to start helping you doing those sorts of chores, as much as you are able to like allow them to help, because not only does it kind of, it sets them up to participate in these activities without needing a reward, which like if you have to bribe your kids later, like I always had, like if I did anything, it was like for my allowance, right? As opposed to just doing it because it needs to get done, which is a huge thing as an adult because no one's going to give you an allowance for doing your cleaning. You just have to get it done, <laughs> unfortunately. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but so if a kid like wants to help, let them help. And it also helps for them to develop confidence in themselves and their skills. And it helps you develop confidence in them and their skills. Like, mm -hmm. I know people talk about this with cooking a lot is a, is a really big one because kids will like want to get involved if the parent, especially if a parent cooks a lot, the kid wants to get involved. They want to help and they want, they just want to be part of it, right? They want to be part of everything their adult's doing. But a lot of adults will say no and they completely say no. And this pushes the kid out of the kitchen and it means that they're not developing the skills. They're not developing like an interest in where their food comes from and they're not learning skills that they will absolutely need as they get older and and i know a lot of parents will kind of they balk at this because there's hot things and sharp things mm -hmm. but how is your kid going to learn about hot things and sharp things 
if you don't expose them to it in a controlled, safe setting. And I, it, it, one reason I know a lot of adults don't do this is because it takes a lot more time, right? Because like, if you're trying to do the dishes and your three-year-old wants to help, they're gonna, they're probably gonna make a mess, right? Like, if there's gonna be water everywhere, all this stuff. But how else are they gonna learn if not by learning it? Exactly. And this is, I'm really glad that we got onto this topic because I was hoping we get to talk about food and kids a little bit is that uh, and one of the reasons I care so much is as aforementioned I worked in a restaurant for a very long time <laughs> I did eventually graduate out of the dish but it just took a while you know and and one of the things right it is really challenging with kids is, is mealtime and food is can be such a huge challenge yeah. I remember my parents having difficulties with all three of me and my <laughs> brothers in, in different stages right like different things that we didn't like or you know having to put the timer on the stove so that we you know you got to finish this or there's no snacks or whatever uh -huh. right um but I've and so I've I've read a lot into this and one of the things that I've learned is that engaging it is it's really like when you engage kids in the food process it helps get past some of these barriers around certain types of food and especially it's sort of so it, it's all sorts of things so it's even to the point where it's like you should take your kids with if you take your kids with you to the grocery store because often you don't even have a choice right you're looking after your kids you can't leave them <laughs> home alone and and you, you might want to say okay I want you to pick one vegetable that appeals to you when we're walking through the vegetable aisle and we're going to make something with that vegetable. And it's a good thing even for us as adults to sometimes, because I know I'm not, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but I'm a pretty good cook. And I, but I actually do get into a rut of, I have four or five recipes that yeah. I know I can, you know, snap out in the, in the middle of the week. And I know the ingredients they take. I can, I can go to the grocery store without a list and get everything I need for these, these meals. But then I get stuck into this rut of eating the same thing over and over and over again. And you get kind of bored of it. And what this can do if you're a parent, when you allow your kid to do something like that, you know, your kid might point at the okra and you'll be like, oh my God, I don't know how to cook okra. <laughs> but now it's a learning opportunity for you and your kid. And you can be honest about with that, that you with your children. You should be honest about that with your children. <laughs> Absolutely, right? You should be honest about the things you don't know. And you could say, oh, I actually don't know how to cook that. But let's get some and let's find out together. And that also will help the kid sort of accept however that food tastes when they eat it because they're not like oh this is the food that mom and dad are trying to make me eat it's like we don't no one knows what this food is about we're going to try it together i bring up okra because okra is really good you should you should eat it it's very healthy for you but i digress um <laughs> either way though it, and that's the other thing too is that they say is that when you're introducing your kids to new food at, at the dinner table or wherever don't don't ask them questions like hey does that taste good or right because they don't they've never tried this food before and they may not have a concept of you know if you ask them kind of well does it taste good or bad they're just going to say it, it they just, all they their brain knows is that it tastes different mm -hmm. and when you're young like that most different things are bad and scary so you're going to react that way but sometimes what can be a more meaningful way to talk about it is to say like what does it what does it feel like in your mouth? What kind of tastes does it have? Does it remind you of any yeah. other foods? And you really start to engage their thought process to get them to think about the foods that they're eating. And that will allow them to make their own decision about whether they like or dislike a food. And again, and the same sort of thing is like, I missed a step in kind of between where you should also involve them in the prep of the food yeah. so that they understand like, you know, we're cooking this this. I'll stick with okra. We're stick. We're cooking this okra a particular way, and you know 
but and so that's why it's going to taste this way or it's going to have this kind of mouthfeel and all these things but we could cook it different ways and have different results and you know trying the little raw ingredients and things like that like being very explorative it, it's sort of funny because this is something that like high level chefs do they play with their food essentially they try different things they eat little bits of stuff they try raw material they try combinations of things and that's what makes them so creative in the kitchen because they have this palette of of um you know like in the same way that an artist would have a palette of paints you have this palette of flavors and ingredients that you can just pick and choose from and create all sorts of crazy stuff yeah, there's a show on Netflix called Crazy Delicious. Mm -hmm. It's a cooking show where it's all about using ingredients in new ways or trying to build things in different ways, which is it helps you look at food differently. Um, and being involved in the prep for kids, also it introduces them to potentially or to dangerous things in a safe way, uh, like knives. And if your kid is introduced to like what a knife is and, and how to how to chop safely with it and how to be safe with it when they're like younger, like six, then if they're, as they get older and if they come across a danger like that, they're going to recognize it. They're going to know what to do and they're going to have the confidence to do that thing because they've built the skills. And this is actually a hugely important element of play. So we've talked about play being very important in all these things and free play is really important. Kids don't get a lot of free play anymore, especially outdoor play. I mean, if you grow up like in an apartment, then you don't have as much access to it. But free play and learning to trust themselves, you learning to trust them and them learning to trust themselves is hugely important. And this is where I think we should go into uh, risk versus hazard. Mm -hmm. and, and talk a little bit about risky play. And this is something that, that Sarah and I have been kind of quite embroiled in at different times over the past few years because of some programs that we've helped run. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we really, really strongly believe in and have kind of seen firsthand the, the power of it. So... So yeah, I think it's supernatural as parents to, you know, be, and or as caregivers, I should say, to be very concerned about the well-being of the children in your care. Of course, you do not want to see them get hurt, right? And you should be. Yeah, like, You should absolutely. care that your child is safe. But part of caring that they're safe is knowing that they can handle danger, essentially, on their own. Yeah. And this is where this idea of, like, risky play comes from. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that we have... We have startlingly little of in today's society, oh, yeah. but I'll even give an example kind of of like, a, I remember when I was a kid, you used to be able to go to usually on Saturdays or Sundays at Home Depot, they would hold these classes and yeah. it was, you know, you would go with a parent and you would build a little project and it was, you know, but you would work with these tools and stuff like that. So cute. Oh, it was super adorable. I remember we used to get, you, every all the kids would have a little smock and then the more of these you went to, you would get like a little button for ah. a pin for every, like every sort of project <laughs> you did. Um, and my dad is a, uh, his hobby is finished woodworking, right? Like he's, I, that makes it sound like finish the country. He finished like <laughs> finish woodworking is just sort of like high quality woodworking, like, you know, where it's varnished and finished off nicely. Oh, okay. Um, and, or you even put it, when you think about some of the finishes in your house, like mm -hmm. your baseboards or your paneling and those sorts of things. Your wainscoting. Yeah. Your wainscoting as it were. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's his hobby. So that's why he took us to a lot of these things <laughs> as kids. And I mean, lo and behold, once again, two of my brothers are engineers. So, you know, take from that what you will. And it's, and it is, but it's it's a controlled environment in which you can work with some things that are they're adult tools, and kids love that. They eat love that up. Eat, so so I, I don't even know where to take this conversation because there's so you know Sarah. I know, there's so many things we could talk about, and, and Sarah and I get very excited about it. So yeah. well, I mean, even one of my uh, examples that I always think about is with playgrounds, right? Like playgrounds have been designed in like things started in like the '90s and stuff, but they've been designed to be safe. Like the, the idea is like you can't get hurt on one of these playgrounds. And, and you know the one I'm talking about. It's like 
It's like the the thick, thick plastic ones with like it's all like round. It's it's very safe. Like the most dangerous thing is that there's like metal stairs basically. Mm-hmm. But like when I was a kid, I remember the most fun things were those like domes. It's like the geo. Oh yeah, yeah. Sort of, and and I was I was inside them and climbing all the time. Like that was my favorite thing. It's not a surprise. I ended up in gymnastics, <laughs> but like I liked that. There's this one jungle gym that had this big metal slide that has since been replaced to a shorter, safer met- or plastic slide. But it was this big metal slide. And what did I learn from it? That metal gets hot when uh, it's in the sun yep. <laughs> because if you slide down it in the summer once in shorts and you learn a very valuable lesson and you don't get hurt. You just learn. But jungle gyms have been designed to be safer and safer and that you can't hurt yourself. But this doesn't this doesn't uh, really develop kids, especially like once you're into like six years old and stuff, you're starting to look for something to challenge you. These playgrounds don't challenge kids at all. So they they might get hurt trying to work beyond the playground's limitations. limitations yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So they might be trying to climb on top of it. I remember one time I came across this jungle gym and it was big. It was like... I don't know, much bigger than your average playground. And it was shaped like a pirate ship. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, I want to climb the side of it. And I did. I climbed up over the side and I was like very pleased with myself up like <laughs> a few meters up, you know. But it's because the the play that was built into the jungle gym was not appealing to me. So I looked for something that would actually challenge my skills as a tiny monkey child. yeah and it's it's unfortunately one of these things that comes out from like the litigation culture uh yeah especially in the states that's really what has driven this in north america and it's interesting because like you you used to before this big shift happened there were hundreds of playground designers in the united states independent playground designers of all kinds And then there was certain legislation that was passed about how playgrounds needed to be constructed. And obviously the litigation culture started to really explode. And then you started to really see now there are only, I think it's only two main company. There's only two companies in the entire, you know, United States and Canada that basically build and design playgrounds and have the material to do it. You know, so you not only see this basically decimation of an industry, but then also, yeah, you're producing these spaces. Like think about how many playgrounds you can drive by today that are, they never have any children. in (laughs) Unless there are swings. Unless there are swings. Exactly. You know, and it's, or, or, you know, or those are very young children who are only ever out playing in those environments when they're with their parents, like their parents are taking them to those places. Yeah. And it's because they're not engaging for kids. They're not a good space to play. And I remember similarly to you, we had a playground at my elementary school. It was this massive wooden jungle gym. It was huge. It was, it was connected all the way around. I can, I can even like picture it in my mind still to this day, but it was old and it wasn't like constructed out of pressure treated wood or anything like that (laughs) so literally every day the supervisors were pulling out like multiple splinters from every child because we were climbing all over this thing we were getting splinters and we were young and we couldn't tolerate pain so we were crying all the time and I'm sure part of that was part of the reason to get rid of it I'm sure part of it as well was that it was just getting too old and I remember when they started unveiling the diagrams to like the parents and things like that of like okay this is what the new playground was going to be and I remember us universally being so upset as children <laughs> because we we're like this this playground's not going to be any fun and like I did spend my final few years at that sc- like after that playground was built at that school and we still like would just lament 
about the old playground and talk about, oh, the old playground used to have like a 20 foot slide and, or this. I mean, I don't know if it was 20 feet. Everything feels like huge to a child. So, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like the metal slide I was very excited about wasn't that big. Yeah. But it wasn't one of the, like the little ones. So it was exciting. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) And then, yeah, you see this shift towards all these like plastic playgrounds and now something you see in a lot of playgrounds, it used to be like gravel everywhere. And even gravel has some issues because it's a safer surface, Mm -hmm. but now you're at these, like basically it's recycled tire. Yeah. Um, Spongy. It's that spongy material and it's uh that's one that material is really expensive for one it's kind of an interesting conversation in and of itself but it, it basically creates this environment that doesn't behave like the rest of the real world does so we used to talk about this a lot in terms of we ran this program uh it was like an adventure playground yeah. uh and essentially the idea is it's a free play space where like adults are basically not allowed to enter that space it's just for the kids outside of the adults that are there sort of supervising and they're only there to prevent hazards so i, I know we got a little bit off of it but we should definitely go back and talk <laughs> <Right>. about <laughs> risks versus hazards that's kind of yes. where this conversation started yeah so uh so a risk is uh it's a danger but it's one that you can see and acknowledge and deal with Mm -hmm. whereas a hazard is a danger that is unseen yeah so it's almost like a a risk is something that you can consent to yes you can say i'm going to climb the outside of this pirate ship because i want to and i know that i can right and and the with the knowledge that if i fall it'll hurt Mm -hmm. exactly exactly (laughs) with your understanding of the situation whereas a hazard would be climbing that pirate ship and one of the panels falls off You know, you can't see that coming and you can't, quote unquote, consent to that element of the risk. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you are doing these types of free play things with your kids, regardless of the environment it is in, you want to promote challenging risks that are appropriate and remove potential hazards, right? So if you have kids nailing into a board, you want to make sure that you take any of the, you know, the staples that might be in it out. Like I think about, you know, pallets often have these staples that hold them together and things like that. You want to make sure that the kid is not going to run into anything that they're not going to expect to run into. Mm -hmm. And that you're showing them the whole situation of like, okay, these are the elements that are at play. This is what a hammer is. This is what a saw is. This is why they're, they're risky tools. And this is how we need to use them, right? Yeah. And to respect our tools. So Absolutely. To and I always think about an example of if a kid is like walking along in an adventure playground, because a lot of adventure playgrounds, it's like, it's like piles of like wood and tires and they can use tools in a semi-supervised way, right? Like there's adults there watching them, but they're not like hovering over them most of the time. So the kid is getting to like learn how to use it. But one thing that you get in this sort of environment is uneven ground. Like you might get a board that looks like it's kind of flat, but if you step on it, it's actually held on another piece of wood, so it's going to slip and you and you could fall. But by going through that experience, then the next time you're around a pile of wood that looks like this, you're going to have a memory of, oh, I stepped on a piece of wood that looked kind of like this, and I slipped and I fell, so I should be mindful and aware of my surroundings so that I don't do that again. One of the ways I used to explain it to parents that were sometimes hesitant about letting their kids play in these types of environments was, one, I would always assure them about the tool safety. I would sort of be yeah. like, well, we're here to make sure that they, one, you know, don't start sword fighting with hand saws. Yeah. But also... And we, we give one, like, one nail or screw at a time. Yeah, like, yeah. That, all that stuff. <laughs> and we used... But one of the things I used to say to them, too, is that, like, also, you know, kids of that age, they don't have the physical strength to, like, everyone's always worried, like, oh, they're going to cut off one of their fingers or something. I'm like, kids don't have the physical strength to use a handsaw that way like they can barely cut through a twig yeah you know? we're not giving them like 
super duper chef knives. Exactly. <laughs> and that's why it's like, this is that age. It's a really good time to start teaching them those tools because yeah, they don't even really have the capability to cause like serious, serious damage to themselves. Again, you got to supervise them. you got to oh, yeah. kind of make sure these hazards are removed. You know, you don't leave the kids sitting around with the bandsaw or something like that. I mean, that would be ridiculous. <laughs> but I used to sort of explain it to them this way too, is that you teach kids risk at this age and how to, how to gauge their own risk and understand what kinds of risks that they're okay with engaging, engaging in and res- recognizing where that limit is for them. Cause every person has a different risk tolerance and yeah. it moves a little bit over our lives. We can push our risk tolerance up. We can become more sheltered, all these things. But everyone has a different line where they kind of end up drawn on uh, in terms of this is too much risk for me. And I often used to say to parents that it's like it's better for them to understand risk and how to deal with it and how to walk away from a risky situation that's yeah. beyond their comfortable comfort level before they turn 16 and they get themselves behind the, the wheel. And now they're driving a 2000 pound missile yeah. that they don't understand as risky that way. I think it's a hard thing, even people with really, really good risk understanding to, to, I think it's something that we lose sight of as teenagers. We, you know, all teenagers think they're invincible for one. And then you get behind the vehicle and you suddenly have all this freedom, all this power. And you forget sometimes that you are in the wrong situation, you are driving a weapon and you need to be very respectful of that. Um, It's why, you know, you shouldn't buy, you know, I, I, I won't tell anyone how to raise their kids. I don't have kids of my own, of course, but you know, it's why you should be very cautious about buying a kid with a car for a car with a lot of horsepower, mm. because even to the point where they don't know how to handle that kind of power in a vehicle, right? Yeah. Like if you give a kid a V8, I, I, I could hardly drive a V8 today. It's a lot of power, like a sports car, you know, and it's very, very easy to completely lose sight of the power that you are, you, that's under your foot, literally. And just to, to go to teenagers and we'll jump away from teenagers. Oh, again. yeah, for sure. Uh, teenagers are incredibly susceptible to groupthink. Yes. So like teenagers more so than most other age groups, peer pressure. That's why we always talk about it as such a bad thing for teenagers. Like groupthink, an individual teenager can be really smart and have really good risk assessment. But if you put a group of teenagers together and they start kind of like egging each other on, it can get out of hand very, very quickly. And that's just because that's the stage of development their brains are at and it even comes back to that concentric circle thing right is that that for for teenagers that concentric circle of their peer group is becomes in their mind the most important circle because that's the one that they're developing and they have the most sort of control over in its entirety and they're trying to gain independence from their parents and learn who they are more so Mm -hmm. we all have those stories of like the friends we had in high school that we thought we would be best friends forever and then we've like never spoken to them again (laughs) it happens but with teenagers, they, they are going through uh, an egocentrism, which is actually something toddlers go through, hmm. right? Like, that's why toddlers have this, like, they, it's like, they're saying no, they're saying me, they're saying all of this stuff because they're in a they're in an egocentrism, they're very focused on self. Teenagers, as well, are going through a very focused on self uh, egocentrism. But yeah, so all of this to say, it's, there's a lot to know with childhood development and then brain development and, and what risks to expose your child to at what age and how to handle uh, misbehavior and how to handle empathetically and patiently mm-hmm. deal with with children because that's a huge thing is, is patience when you're dealing with children it's one of the the main things that they need because they're gonna mess up and they're gonna make mistakes and dealing with these uh these sorts of these behaviors and and issues and things in a a less productive way can actually do damage to a, a child's brain and and harm their development long term because if we're going to talk about the things that 
children need. So the, the kind of the main things kids need is kind of a bit of a summary. They need love. They need love. And I know we hear this all the time, but love as meaning, love as meaning warmth, forgiveness, understanding, patience, and communication. Because this teaches them not only to have empathy for others, but how to self-regulate their emotions and how to self-soothe. So you need to you need to model that behavior and then teach it to them. And empathy and understanding and patience are gigantic. That's what that's what love really means. More so than just like, I care about them a lot. It's like, okay, well, show them you care about them by helping them develop <laughs> these things that they're going to need. And we help them by communicating with them and showing them. Uh, and then that goes right into attention and quality time. Like we said, they're going to mirror, like they want that mirror, that uh, back and forth call and response. So you you got to do that and play games, read with them, talk to them and cuddle with them, right? It makes them feel important and valuable, develops their self-esteem and helps them develop their language and their ability to communicate, which is going to serve them for the rest of their lives. Going off of that thing, we need healthy behavior of all the adults surrounding them because kids are mimics, right? They mimic everything we do. If you see really bad behavior in a child, there's there's adults somewhere that they got it from. Not even blaming just, all the parents, but and, just and like even all just, adults. Yeah, like adults on, you know, what they learn on TV, what they yeah, see adults yeah. do in media and things like that. You know, that's sort of what we mean when we say they, they mirror everything, right? Yeah, because they're always watching. Like, you know, if, when you get like a baby and once they, they get their eyes to focus on things, they watch constantly. They're mm-hmm. just always watching the other adults because they're trying to figure out Oh, I'm going to be that. How do I be that? And they're right? constantly learning, right? Yeah. Like everything is new, especially for a baby, right? That's yeah. why they're so like active in that sense. They're always looking around. They yeah. always want to see stuff is because every new thing they're seeing is a new neural pathway that's being created in that moment, which will a lot of them later get pruned, but everything is learning. Like you know, they're just, they're learning about everything about the world around them. Yeah, and as they learn everything around them, this is the time to gradually increase that responsibility and independence because they want it. Kids love when you make them responsible for stuff. Not like big things like your emotional state, uh, <laughs> but like being responsible for stuff around the house, for helping you, for this, these little responsibilities so they can start gaining uh, belief in their abilities and you gain belief in their abilities. And uh, it also helps them to be more independent and like want to come to you and want to do things with you, but be able to separate from you and do things on their own because they're going to have to. And if kids don't get these sorts of uh, nurturing, loving, positive relationships, it can it can cause a lot of issues. And so there's there's issues around like abuse and neglect that would come into to this. And also that sort of thing and things like poverty and hunger can lead to persistent stress, which is actually really toxic for kids and can produce very long term damage in a child's developing brain. The short, short, acute stresses, like short-term acute stresses are important for developing resiliency. Like we said, like they fall, they get up, they, they learn that way, but they, it's the, the stress of a, the stress of a new tool, right? Yeah, Learning yeah. an adult tool or, or a task like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But the, the stress of, I don't know where my next, like, Meal I don't know if I'm going to eat, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or mom is sad all the time and I don't know what to do about it. These sorts of things can cause this like long, long-term stress. And there's actually a really good quote that I came across on this. It's a little long, but it's from Jack P. Shankoff, who is a medical doctor and the director of Harvard Center on the Developing Child. And what he said was, when children experience uncertainty or instability or abuseful or neglectful relationships, it literally disrupts the circuitry and the brain's architecture as it's being built. Over time, this has a wear and tear effect. And the more stress you have, the more causes of stress, and the longer your stress response, the more likely you are to have a whole range of problems later on. 
It can affect the immune system, the cardiovascular system, and this is why excessive prolonged stress early in life is associated with a higher prevalence later, not only of learning problems and behavior difficulties, but also physical and mental health problems. And I think this is interesting because this is, I think, something that we can understand even as adults, right? Like we live stressful lives and think about, you know, work projects or life events that you had where you're just constantly under stress and it just, there's no release, there's no relief from it. Think about this past year, yeah. right? The stress <laughs> that we've been under and it has this effect on your body. Like uh, I, I'm starting to call, I have, I've always had a few like white hairs that grow <laughs> and they, I've gotten a few more over this pandemic year. I'm starting to call it my Cruella DeVille strip because uh, it's just sort of this like in the center of my part, like these three or four white hairs that are becoming more noticeable every day. But it's, this is sort of what we mean, right? Is that like even us as, a, as adults, you know, think about sometimes that you'll be under these incredible, these you'll see these long periods of stress. Say you've got a big deadline at work or something like that, or you're a student, you've got a big deadline for school and then you finish it and that stress is gone. And then all of a sudden your body like collapses yeah. on you <laughs> and you, sick. yeah, you get sick. You get sick. This happens to so, 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 so many people. I've even said that to people. I've been like, as soon as we get through this project, I guarantee you I'm going to come down with a cold. It used to happen to me after exam season. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's because you, you, you're under so much pressure all the time. And then your body finally kind of releases all of this stress and our bodies are not meant to exist in this heightened level of stress response all the time. It's supposed to be a tool for our survival. And unfortunately our society has created elements within itself that basically mean you're under stress all the time. So fun. So much fun. Uh, yeah. So much fun. But with this, uh, also we can see not just the effect of stress on us now, but we all know what it's like. We all know that the issues with things that happened in our childhood affecting us today. Cause like, why do you think everyone in childhood or everyone in therapy? Why, why is think- it such a trope that it's like, Let's go back to your childhood. Yeah, like if everyone in therapy talks about their childhood and their relationship with their parents and adults in their life when they were kids. Because those early years are so dang important and it's so important to have people who know what they're doing, which is why ECE and and very robust ECE programming and professionals who know what they're doing because kids are exhausting. Like as people who work with and have worked with children for many years, they're super exhausting. They require such a high level of attention and energy and patience that don't you want people who are working with your kids to know how to work with them in a healthy, responsible way? Mm-hmm. And I even find like, you know, I, I, I'll just say a little bit of like my tutoring experience sometimes is like, I'll sometimes be having a really bad day. And I'll be going to a tutoring session and I'm very, very conscious of like, okay, well, I, this is this, this is this kid's time. This is their time. They, they dictate, they control this space. And, and I, you know, and I really do, I, I try to do a very good job of like compartmentalizing, you know, okay, well, I'm here with them now. So they get, you know, they get the, the happy Davis, the actor Davis, whatever it is a little bit. Yeah. And then I will come out feeling better. It's a fake it till you make it kind of thing. But <laughs> I, I do find that like even exercising that patience with children sometimes and being positive and, and seeing that response from them will rejuvenate you in so many different ways. But yeah, this is where it really comes into this conversation about why, why and why a universal childcare system in Canada, um, specifically Canada, because obviously, again, the jurisdiction that we live in, mm-hmm. but you know, just in lots of places around the world, they've tinkered with different ideas of this private models, nonprofit models. And it's pretty clear which of the two is more successful. (laughs) Cough, cough. I wonder which one that is, but you know, it is, it's one of these things that because like we know full well that it's not 
unfortunately, you know, some some of us win the quote-unquote the birth lottery and yeah. we are born into very privileged and fortunate environments and we get these types of relationships from our parents just by default. But a lot of people aren't, right? And and a lot of parents aren't also in a place where they can provide all of the things that we just talked about for early childhood. They have jobs. They have to, both parents need to work to earn money. They might be working multiple jobs just to put food on the table, yeah. these things. And they're under this constant stress. Yeah, or they had kids really young, mm-hmm. right? Either by accident or on purpose. I've, I seem to, most of my friends are having kids now, which is, I think, like a decent time because they're they're kind of like established in their careers. They're... Their relationship has been, they, they, it's more established, it's more stable. But I know other people who all their friends got married at like 24 and started having kids. Mm-hmm. Or like they, right out of university. And, and they're people who maybe like never worked with kids before. And there's just this lack of understanding of what it's actually going to be like. And I'm not, I'm not blaming them for, for having kids when they choose to have kids. But there's a, there's a lack of research and understanding into what it actually takes to raise a child. And how much work they actually are. And how you now have this creature, this human who is dependent on you, fully dependent, and their development is dependent on you as well. Mm-hmm. And and so this is why, like, w- we talk about this this universal childcare system as being so important. It's because it creates a social safety net under which, regardless of the socioeconomic status of a family or what a child yeah. is born into, they can access these services. And it's really interesting because these things have really been shown to be effective across the socioeconomic spectrum. So it doesn't matter if you are a $10 million a year family who can, you know, who lives in the McMansion or whatever, you are going to benefit from a a national childcare system or your child can benefit from that system in the same way that someone who's below the poverty line can benefit from those things. And it's in, it's in a whole bunch of different ways. It's, it's, you really need to take a holistic look at what makes the the economics of something like this very valuable and you yeah. know you know so this is a bit of a conversation a little bit away from you know the the hard sciences so to speak and a bit more into kind of like the social science of things or the economics of things and there's you know but we we explained the hard science so that when we started talking about the the social sciences that there's like it's like okay well there there's <laughs> this is the science that's going on at this time and now this is so now we all know why it's important that children have support in this time of their lives. Mm-hmm, exactly, right? And and why it, it should be universally accessible. Yes. So, you know, this this thing boils down to a couple this this is a very complicated picture to paint. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the the best place to start this really is is because we're talking about this sort of budget item in in the Canadian budget and things like that. And why it's such a political issue, we really need to kind of look at the whole picture of what's happened in Canada regarding early child care. This has been something that has gone back and forth in the federal sphere for basically 40 years now. There has been conversations around trying to create a national child care system for decades. And it is unfortunately a heavy, heavily politicized issue. And it's basically used, and I, I really am going to not talk too much about the specific policies of specific types of, of, um, childcare, political stance, oh. you know, political party and things like that, because that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who's for it or who's against it. It's just, it becomes this thing of like, Oh, you want to spend $500 billion on this thing? Well, we don't want to spend $500 billion on this thing. Cause it's going to raise taxes. It's going to do this. It's going to do that. Right. So it's a very easy target because it's so, so, so much money 
It's a very easy target for whichever government is competing against the government that is currently in power to say, well, we're not going to do this because it's too much money and we're going to save you money instead. We'll, we'll do this differently because this is the better way to do it. Yeah. So it's just, it's a very politicized issue, unfortunately. But the fact of the matter is, is that in Canada, there is a jurisdiction that's a perfect case study for this and actually is going to be, is the model in this new budget of how to develop this system across the country. There are case studies in other countries too, but I want to look at this one first. And so Quebec, uh, one of the provinces in Canada, they have a provincial-wide childcare program that basically has mandated childcare to be essentially, it's gone, it's gone below this now, but the whole goal was to get it to kind of $10 a day childcare. For perspective, most childcare in other areas of Canada costs upwards of $50 a day. Yeah, I heard a, I heard a stat that it can be as expensive, like early childhood, early, yeah, childhood education care can be as expensive as college. <laughs> yeah, in the long term, <laughs> right? And especially when you think about, you know, yeah, you might need to have your, in, your, um, your toddlers in a facility like that all day because you're working and no one can be home with them. But even then when they're school age, they might have to go before and after school yeah. to a care facility like this. Because again, you're not, you're leaving home at eight and you're not getting home until five or six o'clock. So, you know, it's all these different things. And so they, so in Quebec, they su successfully created this system and it's actually something like they only pay like $7 a day for childcare. Yeah. And that has created like all these economic benefits. It, you know, it's become again, this huge case study for all of Canada, but a good place to start with talking about this issue is that the big thing is that early childhood education is ultimately it's a, it's a feminist issue, a feminist, pro a feminist problem because it affects women disproportionately to men. Obviously, we all benefit from this. That's the whole thing about feminism. We all benefit from feminism. <laughs> yeah, you know? and, and we're not saying that there aren't dads who stay home with the little ones. Oh, either. no, like, yeah. Of course there are. But the numbers skew pretty heavily that it's the mom staying home. Exactly, exactly. And and what happens is, is that it allow having these types of childcare systems in place allows women to return to work and engage in the workforce more. So when this system was implemented in Quebec, they their women's participation in the workforce was four percent below the Canadian average, and it is now four percent above the Canadian average. And I know an eight percent swing doesn't sound like a whole lot, but we are talking about the population of a pro an entire province, a very populated province yeah. in Canada, <laughs> and then. Also, when you start to expand that, you know, you're talking about, you're talking on the population scale. So you're not talking about a couple hundred people. You're talking about millions of more people in the workforce, earning money, participating in the economy, growing their skills, those sorts of things. And the unfortunate part about childcare is that, or not even, not the unfortunate part about childcare, that was a weird way to phrase it. <laughs> the, the unfortunate part about this conversation in the political sphere, it really comes down to a core element of human psychology, is that we as humans are still animals at our core. We have these very primitive, you know, mental processes that really ultimately dictate everything, despite the fact that we have rationale that suppresses a lot of those things from time to time. You can suppress the fight or flight response through immense willpower kind of thing, but we as humans have an extreme difficulty investing and investing energy, whether that's money, economic energy, social energy, whatever it is, energy of any kind in something that we're not going to directly benefit from in our lives. It's the whole conversation with climate change. It's the whole issue, right? Is that 
not the whole issue. There's a number of different things. <laughs> but one of the problems, one of the problems with climate change in sort of the 90s and the early 2000s when the awareness of it was really starting to grow, but we didn't recognize it as much of an apocalyptic problem as we recognize it today, was that we, a lot of people at that time, they didn't understand why, oh, why should I pay 10% more taxes? Again, that's a lot yeah. to mitigate a problem that we're not going to have to deal with for hundreds of years potentially, right? And it's just very hard for us to invest our energies that way. And this is the thing we see a lot with uh, with politics when you're looking at the makeup of a, of a Senate or a House and it's, it's all 70-year-olds or 60-year-olds and up and stuff. And so there's this... And it that jumps into the the generation gaps as well, is that there's people who they've gone through their lives and they said like, well, this is what it was like when I was a kid. So you can deal with this. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But the younger generation is saying like, no, that's not this the situation anymore. But an older person might be so much farther removed from it and removed from how that situation has developed and what it's become. I mean, the housing market is a perfect example. And like, oh, absolutely. And the, the, the milestones for life of like, get married, buy a house, have kids, have a dog, have a yard, like... These, these models aren't accessible to our generation, but there's a lot of people who don't believe it. And they say, oh, just stop eating your avocado toast. You know, like millennials <laughs> are killing everything. And like that whole, the generational gap, because there's a difference in, in experience and, and understanding that way. But then, yeah, also that, well, I'm not going to be around to see the benefits of it or we did fine. We don't need it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And it, it becomes very, very difficult. And you know, it's, but it, there are so many case studies that have really been shown that this publicly funded model is really the only, you get so much bang for your buck from it. That's yeah. like the huge thing about this. And I, it's one of those things that it's, it's hard to conceptualize sometimes, but there have been a number of economic studies done, you know, around the world here in Canada, even. And the evidence really, really strongly shows that for every dollar you invest in early childhood, you know, whether that's childcare, education, training more staff to do this type of work, all incentivizing people to do it, all of those things, they pay out dividends. Like you are almost guaranteed to pay out exactly that dollar again into the greater economy. So it's not a dollar that's spent really, it's a dollar that's invested. And, but generally you're paying yourself out for every dollar you invest in early childhood, you are paying out 1.5 to 2.8 dollars back into the economy in like real value. And so, you know, when you can, so it starts to become a little bit more of a, I don't want to say it's a no brainer because, you know, spending $500 billion over five years is not a no brainer. It's difficult. And and it does require people to pay into the system so that those $1.5 to $2.5 more can come back into the system 20 years from now. But it's really, you know, the economic analysis has been sort of very well thought out. But there's another great case study in the Australian model of care in that Australia used to have a nonprofit model. They used to have publicly funded childcare through, you know, so they have all these centers that were basically like either government run or heavily, you know, but they were nonprofit centers. They were not businesses. Well, they were businesses, nonprofits are businesses. But anyway, so there was this nonprofit model. And then through a number of different governments, there's this shift to a for-profit model. And this idea that, well, of course, like, you know, the free market can dictate better these these programs and these things, right? But that never stopped being a heavily subsidized government program. So the government was still paying, and I'm going to use, I'm just going to say dollars, but, uh, you know, I'm talking in Australian dollars, but the Australian dollar and the Canadian dollar are very close. They almost always follow each other in lockstep. Okay. And so, you know, you can kind of imagine when I talk about Australian dollars that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of talking in Canadian dollars as well. So I'm just going to use dollars. 
But, you know, they were still subsidizing that like at $300 million a year. And this is now a for-profit system. So you are giving private companies $300 million so that they can, you know, subsidize care for certain groups and things like that. But what was, what they discovered over years, you know, basically after the collapse of this system, and I'll explain how that happened, but they realized that, that this money was not really going to be making this care more accessible to the people that you're supposed to be subsidizing it for, right? The low income earners. It was just, again, it was more money. It was, you know, it was just more money in the hands of these business owners. So this one particular company, company and you've probably heard about them because they became quite no, no, notorious because they, they collapsed. The, the company failed was this ABC Learning. And they're an international, they ended up an international childcare company before they collapsed, right? So they kind of started in a lot of the states in Australia, but they snatched up all of these sort of nonprofit small centers, converted them to their model. But then what started to happen was rather than making the care more accessible, it actually made it more inaccessible. And then there's some stuff that's come out about like, it turns out that there were some, basically there was relationships between the people who were own, owning the buildings and charging rent and the people that ran the companies, right? Mm-hmm. Like that they, that they were in league with each other essentially so that these, these, the, you know, the property owners were increasing rent and like in lockstep, you know, so that these companies could charge more and all these things, right? So it's, it's this big snowball effect. But what happens ultimately is that this business, ABC Learning goes under and all of Australia is a cent- essentially left holding the bag on this failed model they have been and because you can sort of think about it this way right is like you you're paying 300 million dollars a year in these subsidies to these companies the company collapse collapses or like leaves the country or something and now the country doesn't they don't own any of those buildings they don't own they don't own a single sandpit for billions of dollars that they've spent over years subsidizing this they get nothing and in fact, you're now way worse off because all of your in- infrastructure has been dismantled. You know, all the public infrastructure is dismantled. And now the business, the, you know, the private infrastructure disappears because the private industry disappears. And so now they've had this long shift back to a nonprofit model because basically you learn this hard lesson of, unfortunately, sometimes when you subsidize private businesses, that money doesn't even go back into your own economy, oh, yeah. right? Now you're talking about a multinational. They might be taking that $300 million and putting it in over in Belgium or somewhere. I was just or, putting Belgium out as a random <laughs> example. but Or putting it nowhere. Or putting it nowhere. It, right? Or paying it out to their stakeholders. Yeah, I think about uh, the private prison system. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like if you look at the private prison... Pri- <laughs> There's another tongue twister for you. <laughs> if you look at the private prison system, it's this is the exact model because... Now, instead of their goal, the people who run the prisons, instead of their goal being, how can we rehabilitate people and how can we build communities so that we have fewer and fewer people in prison? It's every person we get in prison is more money for us. How do we get more people in prison and how do we keep them in prison? Mm-hmm. So it's it's the same sort of, like you can look at them as kind of, it's the same model, right? If you privatize something and you give people economic incentive to, or you, you give them incentive to just line their pockets instead of, helping the community, a lot of people just choose to line their pockets instead of helping the community. And and that's another big thing, right? Is a private business is always going to have this vested interest in increasing profits. Yeah. And increasing share, like what the stakeholders can get. Right? Yeah. The shareholders, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, and so a lot of things in early childhood, the good practice things, they're not cost saving measures. They cost more money, but they create a better overall product. But a for-profit business is not going to prioritize that because, again, 
their their liabilities to their state to their shareholders to the board all those things they need to be making and uh, you know and they not to get too much into a conversation of late stage capitalism and economic <laughs> growth but infinite growth doesn't exist yeah. that's the model we're living in though this perception that a business can continue to grow and expand indefinitely and nothing in the universe really works that way except yeah. for capitalism <laughs> for whatever reason and when you have this idea of like kids need patience and time and understanding and room to fail and explore and try things and like have empathy towards them what what of those words reminds you of capitalism right like <laughs> and like capitalism it's not all bad there's not like any economic system that is all bad but yeah. it can be twisted and it has been in what we're living in right so mm-hmm. so especially when you're dealing with something yeah like you said childhood education where it is so much like it's not it's not supposed to be a big money maker it's supposed to help the kids mm-hmm. exactly so that they become <laughs> massive drivers of the economy super yeah. effective drivers of the economy yeah. when they become adults because yeah. they become higher earners they make decisions they make decisions that are in line with their beliefs they become they're happier adults they they require less from the government yeah they're more independent exactly yeah. exactly and you know, the big thing is, is that with a childcare system is it does is it incentivizes people to one, it, it allows people to go back to work, then they earn, then families earn more money. And guess what? When parents with children get a little bit of extra cash, where do you think that money goes? It goes back into the economy. It buys diapers. It buys toilet paper. It buys goods and services, right? And it'll, or they take vacations. They yeah. do things that are, are imp- that drive the economy. And it, it could allow parents to it allows them to go back to work, but then it allows them to, if they have a bit more money, to spend more time with their kids usually, right? Like it can it can facilitate that connection with them. And when the kids aren't with the parents, if you have a first-rate education system, when the kids aren't with the parents, they're going to be with people who know what they're doing, which is going to raise healthier kids. Exactly. It allows them to have better relationships with adults, right. you know, and, and as adults with other adults. Right. And and so that's this big thing is that, like, we we don't want to highlight this as a political discussion. It's it doesn't matter who pays for this system. But the the science of what is important in this system is is very well established and the various stages of development and how to how to, you know, positively affect those stages of development is something that is really well understood and really well researched all around the globe globe. Around the glove. Yeah, <laughs> all around the glove. Yeah, and it's it's something that it's it's not about like us versus them. It's about society, right? Yeah. It's it's about all of us. This and, is a, and... yeah. Sorry, this is a classic. The the tide raises all ships kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And and ultimately, there's an aspect of this too that like if we don't do this work, if we don't start incentivizing people to have children, and you, you know, over the next couple of generations we're going to deal with in most western countries especially or you know european north american certain those a lot of those countries we're going to deal with this massive demographic crunch where you have an aging population that is going to you know as we age we draw more out of the social programs right we you know we need more surgeries we need more health care we need more you know we might need to go to an assisted living facility we need all these things from the system even to the point where you know most systems have like a retirement benefit or a some sort of you know pension or something like that that you start earning as you know you know, like welfare, basically, after a certain age. Yeah. And and health of societies in general is not looking good. And the the worse health you're in when you're younger, 
if you don't like really turn it around, then you're going to be drawing even more on that system as you age as well. Exactly. So it, it establishing an early child care system, regardless of like how it's done, but creating this national system can create all of these benefits for all types of families and in all types of environments. And, and really kind of what we wanted, I guess, to highlight in this episode is like, you know, what we can do when we're caregivers in children's lives, like whether you're an aunt or an uncle or, you know, a best friend, has, you know, your best friend has just had a kid and you're babysitting them all the time or you're a parent yourself, right? How we need to be really mindful of all of these different stages of development and start to get a better understanding of like what it is that kids are seeing, what they're thinking when they're reacting to the world around them. And, and all the benefits of having a caregiver, caregiver who understands that. Exactly. Right? And, mm-hmm. and can help facilitate that. I mean, think of all the cult leaders we could stop from forming if we just had really good ECE. <laughs> I've been waiting to say that. I, I've, <laughs> I know a lot about uh, cults. And oh. a lot of cult leaders had not great childhoods. They had not great adults in their lives who kind of warped their view of the world. And they grew up and they took it out on other people, which is what people do, right? Like we we take out our problems on other people. It's, it's called projecting. We all do it. Yeah. But the more you can be aware of these things and, and the more stable your start in life, then the better able you are to emotionally regulate and to recognize the issues when they come up and not project them onto someone else. And also deal with it when people do it to you and be able to take a step back and, and breathe and not take it so personally. And it just like, just helps emotional regulation and, and societal connections and people being nice to each other. Exactly. You <laughs> Helping know, each other. Healthy kids create healthy adults, which raise healthy kids. Yeah. And it's just a snowball's effect, the most positive snowball, where you just create healthier and healthier and healthier generations and you know, you save society from collapse (laughs) (laughs) just to make a, put a super dramatic cap on it. And for people who, for kids who don't have healthy parents, because it's always going to happen, at least then you have a system where they're going to have healthy adults in their life, Mm -hmm. right? It can, it can help to like break some of those cycles because familial, uh, the cycle of trauma, the cycle of, uh, the cycle of abuse, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a really difficult thing to break away from. And, and yeah, this is, you know, I know some people balk at the idea of, of of certain types of social safety nets, but I think one of the things that the COVID pandemic has really revealed, at at least for me in society is that like these, I mean, I've long been a believer in certain types of social safety nets, even up all the way up to a universal basic income, which is a, which is a, um, a philosophy, I not a philosophy, an economic policy I strongly believe in, but you know, this, I think this pandemic has really revealed how important these types of safety nets are to society. And I know the price tag is insane. Like it's crazy to think about that much money, but it's just the, the thing to think about is not, is that again, it is an investment in all of our futures. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Sarah and I are going to be old curmudgeons at some point in time. And we're going to, we're going to be feeding off of the economic input that the next generation is going to be putting in. You Children know? are the future. <laughs> yeah, you've never heard that one before. <laughs> but yeah, so I think that, you know, you have any last thoughts, any other closing statements you want to add? or? Uh, no, I talked a lot about dogs and I got my line about cult leaders in, so I'm, yeah, I'm good. You're feeling pretty satisfied about Yeah, I think I got them. the things in. Excellent. Well, yeah, that kind of takes us to, to the end of the show. Um we, uh, I don't know if we have too many updates on the previous stories. Yeah. Um, obviously, two weeks ago, we talked about spring. And then immediately afterwards, we had an entire weekend of snow. Yeah, and it, it was is, hilarious. It snowed on and off 
for like the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, weeks. yeah. I mean, I'm going to say this foolheartedly for probably the eighth time this season, but I think we've turned the corner on it now, guys. <laughs> I think we're going to be okay. I'm knocking on wood for everyone. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah, exactly. We're be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one update. I had another question for my dad about baseball. Oh, yeah. Oh, here we go. You had a, I asked, why did the Blue Jays suck? And you said they didn't. And he said... The season hadn't even started yet. Okay. <laughs> Fair. I'm just the messenger. I yep. don't watch baseball. We established that last week. I'm going to shoot last the messenger. Time. <laughs> uh, he wanted to know what happens if all the young players they have now get sick, as seems to be happening. Get sick or get injured. Injured is the word. Yeah, they definitely have uh, had a struggle with injuries this year. I think it was something I talked about in the baseball podcast about they're going up from like last year because of the COVID season, they played like 60 games late in the summer and it it really screwed up a lot of these people's schedules and like, you know, the way they work their bodies into shape for this sport because it's, you know, it's a very acute yeah. types of stress like pitching is very hard on your arm hitting is very hard on your obliques and your you know your core strength all these things and it requires a lot of timing and things like that but um there is there is a very good chance um they're starting to come out of this big injury slump now which is really nice uh, and getting some of their players back they're this you know baseball is a sport of attrition there's there they've only played 22 21 game 22 games as of tonight in a 162 game season right so we're only a few percentage points really into the season and uh yeah there there's a good chance that we'll see a lot of injuries surviving injuries is a big part of baseball um but one of the things that the the blue jays are a sub 500 team right now i, I haven't seen the result of tonight's game so hopefully they've climbed up to 500 which means they have an even win loss percentage yeah i had no he was talking about this earlier and i was like okay sure great um yeah that was sarah's reaction 500 500 like the indy 500 but yeah the um i've been really encouraged this season by their uh they have weathered the storm of some of these injuries. They have a lot more depth than this team has had in previous years. It's always been a challenge of the Blue Jays is that they might have like even not even a full lineup of nine that are super talented. They might have like seven regular players, but then there's almost like no major league ready <laughs> players underneath them. But the system has gotten their the organization has gotten a lot stronger. And now I think they'll be able to weather certain certain injuries. Certain injuries would be devastating to the team. Currently they're like all-star pitcher who's not a young person. Um is is injured hopefully for not too long that's really devastating it's gonna be hard for the team to get around that if certain guys though like vladdy uh vladimir guerrero jr who's been on a tear if he got injured yeah it it severely hurts the blue jays chances of making a playoff run this year okay there you Mm. go dad yeah exactly (laughs) who knows maybe this will make it into the show (laughs) i think it'll i think it'll cut it and add it to my burgeoning baseball podcast it's not a real thing that's happening yet soon <laughs> i can't help with it yeah exactly. yeah <laughs> once my once my buddies finished uh, now that law school's done now the school's out for the semester maybe we can talk about stuff but um yeah well um i think that kind of takes us through it for today uh we're not really sure about what we're going to talk about next um, yeah i mean we'll wait to see what's in the news that's true that's true know? um yeah maybe maybe some some camping science but we'll see yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. but if you have a suggest if you have something you want us to talk about Hit us up on Twitter, uh, at Temporary Expert. That's one expert, because Twitter has a limit on how many characters you can put <laughs> after the at. But uh, you can also search up Temporary Experts, and we'll show up. But yeah, you know, let us know what you want to hear, and, um, and and we'll get on it, really. Uh, what about you, Sarah? Anything you want to promote? I mean, you could always check out Third Sock from the Sun, a YouTube yeah, channel where yeah. I talk about science, science-related topics, and science history. 
a very uh, neglected subject, through Sock Puppet. Mm -hmm. And I try to make it cute and silly while talking about not cute and silly things. So you can always head over there, and if you have questions about that stuff, let me know there. Or if you want us to touch on one of those topics, you can bring it over to here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, everyone, so much for, for listening. As always, again, reach out to us, send us feedback, topics you'd like to cover, your corrections, your thoughts, <laughs> all those sorts of things are great. Um, and yeah, for us here at Temporary Experts, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong. And we have been your Temporary, Temporary Experts. Experts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>